Welcome to City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills podcast. We exist to lead people to love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coahforesthills.org. Now, as we think about the holidays, um, there's so many happy memories when it comes to the holidays, so many happy things to think about, Christmas movies and cookies and all the fun stuff like, you know, lessons and carols last night, all these great things about the holidays that bring joy. But the holidays aren't always joyful, and they're not always easy for everyone. For some people, the holidays are particularly difficult. If you've lost a a loved one, the, the, the holidays can be difficult, especially if it's the first one since you've lost a loved one. But another thing that can make holidays difficult is when you have estranged relationships or you have strained relationships, when going home to family is not an easy thing. It's actually something that's going to be very difficult. And when we have these estranged or strained relationships where it feels like you can't actually say anything to make those relationships right, it can feel hopeless and we long for those relationships to be repaired. And for many, that relationship is with your father. Your father is the person that is, it is very difficult for you to have a relationship with. It is either a strained relationship where you haven't spoken in a very long time, or it's an estranged relationship, or maybe it's a relationship you've never even had. Maybe you've never even known your father. And I think this is something that is prevalent in our culture today, this idea of a father wound. A British psychologist, Dr. Mary Covenin, who specializes in attachment theory, which is how a family is meant to meet emotional and physical needs in a child and how that impacts how we relate to others and to ourselves and all of our relationships, how we work, our hobbies, self-esteem, all of that's tied up in that, says that our relationship with our father may impact our ability to attach to others more than any other relationship in our lives. And it's called a father wound because it is a deep wound. And when you think about the wound of a relationship with a father, it doesn't always have to be abuse. And some have experienced abuse at the hands of a father, whether that's physical abuse or emotional abuse or spiritual abuse. That's a very real reality for some, but it's no less real if that wound is because of neglect, where you never felt like your father actually paid attention to you. Or whether that wound is from absence, whether that father's never been there or that father left at some point and he is now distant, or whether that wound comes from a father being controlling, who it always seems like he has his thumb upon you and always wants to tell you what to do, or if it's a father who's withheld his love from you and only gives it when he wants something from you. And this gets at something that all of us want, that there's a deeper love that we're actually longing for. Another psychiatrist, Jim Cassutis, said that the father wound is best described as a longing within the human heart that every person longs to know that they were wanted and cared for by their biological fathers, and yes, sometimes mothers as well. It is a a desire in the heart to know that our existence matters to our Father, and He is pleased that we belong to Him. We all want to know that we're important. We all want to know that our lives matter, that we're valued, that someone, particularly particularly our dad, thinks that we're something, that we're loved. And even if you had the best father in the world, and this doesn't totally resonate with you, your dad still made some mistakes. Your dad comes up short of the love that you were meant for. So whether you had a great dad or a terrible dad or an absent dad or a neglectful dad, the love for a father, the desire for a father to love you this way is meant to point
point you to a greater love that you were meant for. And what's amazing and beautiful about the gospel story and about Advent is that the way that the Bible chooses to describe Jesus' love for you is with the framework of an everlasting father. The way that the Bible chooses to describe Jesus' love is with the love of an everlasting father. Everlasting, not just because he is eternal, but it's the nature of his love. So the way that you could think about this is that you have a father who loves you forever. He's a forever father. Alistair Begg says that the human heart longs for an endless love and sin breaks love relationships and death changes them irrevocably in every instance save one. And that is the endless love of a forever father. A father who's never going to hurt you. A father who's never going to leave you. A father who's never going to not want you. And so for the third Sunday of Advent, I want you to know this. Jesus came to love you with the love of a forever father. So how does Jesus being described as this everlasting father show you the love of God. Now, first, a clarification. Now, if you have been in church for any period of time, you've read any sort of theology, describing Jesus as a father probably sends up some radar, right? You're like, wait a minute, Jesus is God the Son. How is he also the everlasting father? So I want to unpack that for a minute before we dive in. Isaiah is not denying the Trinity. As Christians, we believe in one God and three persons. We don't believe in Three gods, we, do, we believe in one God in three persons. They're in a relationship with one another as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each one, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are co-equally God, the three in one. And now you're going to see a graphic on the screen, hopefully, if I got it in there, that should try to unclutter some of this, maybe. Right, I'm going to do my very best to describe this because the most difficult theological topic to describe is the Trinity, um, is, uh, is that the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, and the Spirit is not the Father, and the Spirit is not the Son. And you could go all around this, but each one is God. Each, each one is co-equally God, three in one. And, and it's a mystery we try to press into and try to understand. And, and there's actually a Near Eastern custom that helps us understand what's being said here. In the Near East, the older brother would often be considered the father of the family in the absence of the father. And so when the father was gone, whether the father had passed away or was traveling, the the oldest son would take precedence over the entire family, and he took up the father's position and imaged the father to the rest of the family. And so what Jesus is doing as the firstborn is he shows us the Father, he's acting like the Father, he's imaging the Father to us. And in Jesus' earthly ministry, he submitted joyfully to the Father's will so that we could see the Father's love. So, So what exactly does Jesus being and imaging this everlasting Father mean for us? First of all, it means that he reflects what God is like. He shows us exactly the type of love that we're receiving in a forever father. And this is why John 14, 9 says, whoever has seen me has seen the father. He images the love of the father. And so we see that Jesus is this everlasting father in that he is a creator and sustainer. This is one sense he is like a father because he is the one who creates us. He's the one that generates us. And he's eternal as God doing so. We saw this in John chapter 1, verse 1 a few months ago, that Jesus 
was God and he was with God in creation. They were there together, that there was nothing created without him because he himself is eternal. In other words, this means that Jesus is uncreated. And so in that sense, he has created all things and is like the father of all things. Now, again, all this stuff with the Trinity, it gets super confusing. Uh, I've heard once that every, every illustration of the Trinity is just an illustration of a heresy about the Trinity. It's a very difficult topic to understand, but we do hold these truths that there's one God and three persons, that Jesus is fully God and Jesus is fully man. And in the early church, there were some false teachers who arose who were saying all sorts of other things about the nature of Jesus. And there was one such teacher named Arius. And Arius uh, said his, his famous quote about Jesus is that there was a time where he was not. There was a time where Jesus did not exist, that Jesus was born, that he was begotten. And fun little fact, he actually spread his life through music. So be careful to the music you listen to. Just because it's popular Christian music doesn't mean it's good theology. That's a sermon for another day. Uh, but it caused a bit of a stir. It caused a stir in the, the church and the church around the, the Middle East. And just what the church does when a problem arises is we form a committee and a team to figure it out. So they get this council at the Council of Nicaea. They all come together. They're going to put this to rest for forever. And, and, and here's Arius on the floor. He's spouting all of his lies. All of a sudden, St. Nicholas, yes, that St. Nicholas, uh, Santa Claus, the one we have based him off of, gets so frustrated that he walks across the room and knocks Arius out in the middle of his speech. So tell that story to your kids over Christmas, okay? Santa will come punch out heretics and give you presents. It's important. This is, this is vital for us to understand that Jesus is this eternal forever father as the creator and sustainer of all things because it shows us that he's not a sub-God. He, he's not a second-rate God. He's imaging the love and the promises of God the Father, and he takes them as one who is co-equal, one who's in perfect agreement with God the Father and with the Spirit, and he takes all of those creation promises and he sustains them and he makes them yours forever. Those are yours in Christ. And it says something about his loving purposes that Jesus didn't start loving you when he came into the world. He didn't start loving you when he came into, onto the scene, but that Jesus set his love upon you inside the Trinity from the very beginning of time. From all eternity past, he has loved you and he will love you into eternity future. And Hebrews 13, 8 says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. The Jesus who is forever, the one who created all things, will care for you and love you for eternity. Francis de Sales says that the name, they're the same everlasting Father who cares for you today, will care for you tomorrow and every day. Be at peace then. Put aside all anxious thoughts and imaginings. What does that mean? It means that this is his world and that your life is his and that everything that makes you anxious and everything that disturbs your peace and everything that keeps you up at night, he's the God over He's the father over. He's the sustainer over. Don't you see how you can trust the one who's the father of all things? You can trust him with the big things. You can trust him with the small things because you have a loving creator. So one way he images the everlasting father is as creator and sustainer. Secondly, he images the father as one who is caring and compassionate. The tone of Jesus' love is, is, is tender. It's caring. 
It's compassionate. It's gentle and lowly, as we've seen from Matthew 11. Many of you have read the book, Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. It's a wonderful book if you haven't read it. But the entire book just tells us of the nature of Jesus' tender, gentle, lowly love. It's like an earthly father getting down on one knee before a small child and speaking tenderly to her. Speaking softly, making her feel safe. And we see that his tender, gentle care for you as one who loves you is never ending. And if we're actually going to flip over to Luke chapter 12 to see this tender love and care and compassion. We see this in Jesus and at the beginning of, of this passage in verse 22, it says, And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. Don't be anxious. This is a command. And the command that Jesus gives to not be anxious, why does he give us that command? It's because he cares for you. He literally wants you to not be anxious. He wants you to know his peace. And so this command is not a condemnation. It's not, how dare you be anxious? How dare you be anxious when I'm the creator and sustainer of all things? It's not a condemnation, but it's a promise given to you with tender love and care. In other words, child, you don't have to be anxious. You and I get so worried. We all have that one thing that makes us fearful, that one thing that makes us anxious on the inside, and Jesus calls out a few of them. You don't have to be anxious about your life. What am I doing here? Why do I live in this place? What am I going to do about this job? What what am I going to do about meeting someone or making friends? He he even talks about food, the provision, just the the daily stuff that some of us struggle with that, you know, am I going to have enough? Am I going to make enough to make rent this month? Do I have enough to eat? Some of us, it's it's clothing and cover. I mean, there's all sorts of things that we, we need. And when we hear a command like, don't be anxious, it feels a little bit like when you're in an argument with someone and someone says, hey, you need to calm down. Is that not infuriating when someone says that you need to calm down? Because the last thing I'm going to do in that moment is calm down. In the same way, when someone says to me, don't be anxious, what do I want to do? I want to be anxious. The only way that this is good news and the only way that that command can take away our anxiety and give us peace is if he's the one who can actually give it to us. And in verse 23, he says, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. In other words, what's big to us is very small to Jesus, and he can handle it. He's saying, I've got it, and he proves this in verse 24 when he says, consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Have you ever looked at a raven or a bird in the sky and thought, man, that bird looks anxious? That bird's wondering how it's going to pay the rent? No, that bird is trusting that God created it and is leading it to flourishing. He flips, he flips down to verse 27. We see the same thing. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. You ever seen a lily actually straining toward the skies if it wasn't getting enough nutrients from the God who created it? And we see how much more God loves us because verse 28, but if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? He values you 
and he loves you because his care for you is attentive. And he doesn't just love you. He doesn't just value you. He knows you and he knows what you need. Verse 29, you do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things and your father knows that you need them. We see a God who cares for us and he's compassionate for us. And if you could imagine the posture of God towards us, it's not disinterest. It's as if he's leaning in towards us, ready to care for us. This is the God who came to us and images a father to us. And John Piper says that if we're children of God, our souls need not ever be troubled alone or in silence. We have a father, a father who knows everything, who knows every need that you have. And he actually knows your deepest need and your greatest need that goes well beyond your life and well beyond food and well beyond clothing. It goes to the spiritual need that all of us have to be loved and to be known, but also to deal with the sinful nature that every every single one of us has. In Matthew chapter nine, we see the compassion of Jesus on display. It says that he went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. If you've ever seen a sheep without a shepherd, it is very gentle and very tender, and they're leading them towards green pastures. He sees your attempts to find value elsewhere. He sees your longing to be loved, and he's moved towards you with the heart of love. Jesus is like a forever father who goes after his kids who are in desperate trouble. Jesus' image is an everlasting father in that he's a protector and provider. He provides for us and he protects us. When you think of a father, we think of provision. We think of provision as the the source of what a family needs. So when a parent's work, a mom or a dad, and some of you may have come from single family households, and I think about my own mom who had to pull double duty as a single mom. When you're providing, you're, you're buying food, you're, you're providing housing and, and clothing, you're providing everything that a child is going to need. And so the image of a father is one who's the source of everything that you need. Jesus is the source that provides like a tender, loving father forever. And so all the things you need, he's not going to stop providing. And, but this even actually goes a layer deeper that we don't quite see here. It goes to how Jesus relates to Adam. When you think of Adam, who is the, the first person created in, in the Bible in the Old Testament, we see Adam, and we think about Adam, who's the father of creation, that every person who's ever been created comes from Adam. Every person who's ever been created was fathered from Adam. We have a common heritage uh, genealogically. But when you look at Adam, Adam as the father of everyone is a pretty, pretty terrible dad. He's kind of a deadbeat dad. He's a selfish dad who didn't put his kids' interest ahead of his own, or he put his own interest ahead of his kids. He thought only about his own interest and what he could achieve and what he could get. He's looking at this tree and thinking, man, if I can be like God and I can have all this knowledge and all this power, who cares what it does to my kids? We see he's pretty crummy. We see that he was a gaslighter and a blame shifter when it came to Eve. He didn't take responsibility as the one who's supposed to provide for her. He looks at God and says, look at this woman that you gave me. It's her fault. And then you get to Genesis chapter 4 and we see him stand silent. And this is actually one of the most compelling things to me in the entire Old Testament is as 
one son kills the other, you don't hear a single word from Adam the entire time. And the only gift that Adam passed down to you and I is sinful nature and death. Everything that's broken in this world comes back to Adam's failure as a father to provide. In Romans 5, verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Like, thanks, Dad. Thanks for that gift. Adam's the father of the old covenant, the old way to get to God, and he failed as the father to provide a way to life for us. And sometimes this fatherhood is described as being the head or being the source. So Adam has been the source of all trouble, and we inherit all these problems, and we repeat the tendencies for greed and selfishness and bitterness and anger. And what's being said here is that Jesus is like a new and better Adam, a new and better father who brings us better provision. Romans 5, verse 19, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. That Jesus is the source of all spiritual blessings, and they're available to you through his work for you. And you don't have to worry if he can provide because he's the head, the source, the father of everything you need. And this is why when you go back to Luke uh, chapter 12, verses 31 and 32, we see the invitation to instead seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's why you can seek the kingdom first. It's why you can seek his glory. It's why you can do his will because he's going to give all things to you as you do. Do you know how freeing that is? To know that you don't have to worry about the little stuff in life because Jesus is going to give you the kingdom? Now, I'm not saying like quit your job and checks are going to show up in the mail tomorrow. I'm not saying that. There, there are some rules to this. Uh, it's like the Little Caesars commercial years ago where it's like a, the guy found out you could get a $5 hot and ready and he like rips his shirt off. He's like, there are no rules. It's like, there are some rules. Put the shirt back on. In the same way, don't quit your job but it changes how you make decisions. When you trust God and you seek his kingdom first, you obey Jesus above everything else. I don't have to take shortcuts. I don't have to take things into my own hand. I don't have to ignore God's wisdom because I think he's going to hold out on me. I can work ethically and I can pursue holiness because God's going to provide for me. So we see how Jesus images a father to us, but for many of us, you still may be having a hard time with the idea of God as a father. This father imagery is is not the imagery you imagine when you think of love. But Jesus' everlasting father also redeems our idea of fatherhood. It may be very difficult for you to grasp what a forever father would be like, that a loving father exists, because all you ever felt from your birth father was unworthiness and that you were unintelligent, that you were incompetent, that you were unlovable. But but even if you felt that, you still long to be loved by a father who values you, empowers you, cares for you, and wants you. So John Piper described the type of father that we get because of Jesus. We get a father who's happy. A father who's delighted in you. For some of us, when the idea of dad coming home, and I remember this as a kid, I just was always wondering, what kind of mood is dad going to be in when he comes home? How was his work day? How was traffic? Is he going to be in a good mood, a benevolent mood? Is he going to be in a bad mood? Is he going to yell? Like, what, what's about to happen? We have a father who delights in us. Because we have a father who delights in his son Jesus and is well pleased with him. 
And what happens through the cross is all of our sinfulness and all of our mess is transferred to Jesus and all the blessings and an obedient son is transferred to us, which means when God looks at you, he delights in you. He wants you. He loves you. He's happy with you. And this isn't transactional. It's not that he's going to love you if you make him proud. It's not that he's going to love you if you perform. He simply loves you because he chose to love you. He's satisfied in you because of Jesus. This morning, do you believe that God is happy with you? Do you believe that God wants to be with you? The second characteristic is that he's generous. You get a generous God. In the Bible, I'm just floored by the generosity of God. You get this people of Israel wandering around the desert for 40 years. They're whining, they're complaining, they're moaning. It's the longest road trip to Disney ever. And God keeps giving them Chick-fil-A. He keeps giving them manna. He's like just shoving it in the backseat. Like, I, no matter how much you complain, I'm going to be generous and provide. He kept giving them manna. He keeps giving plentiful grace for every mistake we make. He gave us his own son. He's not holding out. We get an exhorting father. We don't get a father who lets us do whatever we want to do. But we get one who wants to train us to live the most flourishing life possible, and that's being trained for godliness. Good parents don't let their kids do whatever they want. Good, good parents don't just get passive and say whatever and do whatever you want to do. Good parents train their kids towards something. They, they, they train them towards what matters most, what's valuable. They, they train them for what's worth sacrificing for, and they guide them to life. We have a forever father who loves you enough to tell you that you're wrong. We have a forever father who loves you enough to convict you by his Holy Spirit. A forever father who loves you enough to discipline you when you're rebelling because he wants the best for you. But you also have a listening father. You have a father who hears you, who's attentive to you, and who answers you. I don't know if you've ever been talking to your parents, and really this is just anybody you could be talking to, and it's clear they've checked out of the conversation. You've ever had that happen with a parent? And you're talking, or maybe it's even a friend, and you're talking to them, and you get a lot of, yeah, yeah, man, that's crazy. And then once you start getting those responses, you know the conversation's over. God never does that. He never checks out. What an incredible father we have. And I just want to say a note to, to the dads in particular, but also the moms too. I think there's something here for the moms as well. You might be thinking, I have no clue how to be a good father. I have no clue how to be a good parent. Maybe you're a parent right now and you're struggling and you're wondering, how in the world do I love my kids in the way that I didn't feel like I was loved? Same thing for the moms. I, I don't have a pattern. I don't have an example. Jesus is that example. You can learn to be a good parent. If you desire to be a parent and you're still wondering these same things, Jesus is that example. John Piper says that God, good fathers serve, bleed, and die to themselves in love because they learn to lead at the foot of the but I'd also say, find some dads you see in our congregation who are loving and leading their kids well. Find some moms in this congregation who are loving and leading their kids well and watch them and pattern after them, learn from them. We all want a father like this. We, we all want one who loves us with a, with a personal love because he's a personal God. And this is why Jesus can't just be a concept. He's a person who took on flesh, who took on a human body to bring the love of God to us. But if we're honest, before we come into a relationship with Christ, there is a distance. And this is why Jesus had to come personally. Lastly, Jesus' everlasting Father reclaims us to the Father. 
He reclaims us to, for, and because of the great love that you want most. He reclaims you to the great love of the Father. The way the Bible describes you and I before a relationship with Jesus, before salvation, is that you and I are lost, that we're orphaned, and we're estranged. Those are the, the three words that are often used of us, that we're lost, looking for hope, we're orphaned without a family, and we're estranged from God, that the only thing keeping us from the love of God is our own, is our own hearts. What the gospel says is that in Christ, that you can be found family and beloved, that Jesus came after you, that he came and found you in your lostness and brought you out of your orphanhood into a family that you're no longer estranged and you're beloved. But to receive that, there has to be a change in status. You have to have your sin and your guilt and your shame taken away and they have to be completely forgiven. And this is why you need a forever father, as Psalm 103 says, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. You need Christ to rescue you to his great love. Herman Bavinck said that Jesus takes away our guilt and again opens the way to God's fatherly heart. So we're rescued or reclaimed to the love of God. We're also rescued and reclaimed for the great love of the Father. Not just to God, but to experience the love of God to enjoy the greatest love you and I could ever imagine, to enjoy the greatest care and compassion, the source and provision of our salvation. And that that love is everlasting, that you get to enjoy that forever. And it's as Spurgeon said, that in Christ there is no unfathering and there is no unchilding. We need to think of the great value of what we've been given and enjoy it. We often think of the love of God a little bit like a gym membership. We think of it a little bit like Planet Fitness. Planet Fitness has the most brilliant marketing strategy ever. They made a gym for people who don't go to the gym. In fact, the average Planet Fitness has 10,000 members. Now, you may go into a gym and you look at a little meter bar and it reads three and it feels like there's 10,000 people in there, but there's not. They've made a gym that's just treadmills and abductor machines as far as the eye can see, right? It's not very valuable. It doesn't cost you a lot so we don't take advantage of it. What if we began to think of the love of Christ more like lifetime fitness? Have anybody ever been to a lifetime fitness? I'm moving into a lifetime fitness. That place is amazing. It costs hundreds of dollars a month, but it has basketball courts and saunas, and people will like lift weights for you and you get stronger. I don't understand the magic, but it's so expensive, but the benefit is so great. What would change if you really deep down began to understand the great cost and benefit of the love of Christ for you? You'd begin to live in it. You'd quit hiding. You'd quit pretending. You'd quit putting so much pressure on other people to give you the love that only Jesus could give. And you would begin to lean into and receive and live for the love that you've been given. You'd find real healing for your wounds. But also we've been reclaimed because of the great love of the Father. I don't want to miss this. Why did Jesus come? It is simply love. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. It's been given to us by an everlasting forever Father. So so just quick takeaways to encourage you this morning about the love of Jesus. First of all, simply this. Jesus loves you. He loves you so deeply. He loves you enough to have given his life for you. Jesus cares about you so much. He knows all the stuff you're struggling with, all the stuff that you're wrestling with, and he's given you himself. And lastly, Jesus knows you. He knows your heart. And my 
question for you this morning as we receive and live into this love this morning. Let's pray.